the word of God from Isaiah. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you remain standing for one moment more? Thank you, Stephen. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, come be our wisdom. Soften our hearts. In this Advent season, we need you more than we need anything else, more than any decoration, any light, any meal. We need you. So be our wisdom. And may these... Precious words fall on fertile hearts, for we ask it in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Denver Prez. I'm Ronnie, if you're visiting us. So um, today, we are beginning just a very short sermon series um, on a few passages in Isaiah, uh, and we're calling it God With Us. So in the book of Isaiah, we're introduced to this future king who would be called Emmanuel, right? And Emmanuel means God with us. And, and that's the whole storyline of the Bible, right? Like in the beginning, God and man walked together. And if you jump to the very last chapter in the book of Revelation, uh, you see that God and man once again walk together. But did you know that in the middle of history, right in the center, God and man walked together then too? On the first Christmas, Jesus arrived in human form and walked with mankind. His birth was predicted centuries and centuries before the child was even born in Bethlehem. And as modern Christians, we look back at Christ's birth. But did you know that God's people in the Old Testament looked forward in anticipation uh, that, this, that this Messiah, this child, Jesus, would be born? Now, how did they know? How did they know? Why did they anticipate this? Well, there are a lot of predictions this morning, we're just going to look at the passage we just heard, Isaiah 9. You've heard that passage 
a thousand times, right? It's very familiar. But here's what I want to do. Is I, want to, I want in this introduction, I want to give you a little historical context so that you can just appreciate just the, the beauty and the weightiness and how amazing those words really are. So eight centuries, right? 800 years before Christ, Israel has this civil war of sorts, right? They split into two countries. You have a, a northern kingdom, which kept the name Israel, and you had a southern kingdom, which took the name Judah. So Isaiah, what we're reading, is written to the southern kingdom in Judah. So Israel and Judah were pretty puny. They weren't exactly military superpowers, but it shouldn't have mattered. Why? Because God is their protector. They were not allowed to make alliances with pagan nations because God is their protector. Now, about that time, eight centuries uh, before Christ, Assyria comes into prominence. And Assyria is the most powerful pagan empire in the, in the region. And they have this king, and his name is Tiglath-Pileser III, all right? Now, with a name like that, and apparently his dad and his grandfather had that name, you know the dude is intense. So everyone in the Middle East is totally afraid of getting conquered by Tiglath-Pileser III. I'll just call him Tiggy P, right? So, like, filled with fear, the northern kingdom makes this alliance with Syria, a pagan country. What did I say about alliances? Strictly forbidden. And at that same time, you have Edom and Philistia, and they've also gotten together to start creeping in on Judah on the southern kingdom's land. And so the, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, is this guy named Ahaz. And, and so here is the situation. The northern kingdom and Syria are, are threatening him. If, they don't, if the southern kingdom has joined their alliance, they're going to take them out. You got Team Edom and Philistia who are threatening Judah. And so Ahaz is looking around going, what should I do? And this is what he should do. Trust the Lord because God always protects them. He's got a great track record. Instead of that, Ahaz makes an alliance with Tiggy Pete, right? With Assyria. What's the logic there? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So Ahaz makes a strictly forbidden alliance, hoping that it will bring him security and wealth. And now the people of Judah, the citizenry, they're devastated because their king has walked away from the Lord. They know that their future hope will be crushed because the welfare of the people is tied to the obedience of the king. And when the king disobeys, everyone suffers. So things are looking really dark for the people of God in Judah. So it's into that context that Isaiah, this prophet, gives us this prophecy, what we will call the sign of Emmanuel. So Isaiah looks at his people who have a horrible king, and he says, listen up, everyone, team, bring it in. That is not how the story ends. This human king has failed us, but I will send you a sign, Emmanuel. God with us. God will be our king. And how will you recognize him when he arrives? Well, two chapters earlier in Isaiah 7, we're told that this child will be born of a virgin. That should be a dead giveaway, everyone. You know, that didn't happen every day. They know how babies are made. 
And then in our passage this morning, we learn more about this coming God-King baby named Emmanuel. Now, listen closely, because all of that context, it matters. It matters. Listen, my wife will tell you, I have this complex relationship with Christmas. I love it. I'm not a hater, but it's complex for me. I, uh, I grew up in a, a very a super humble home. Uh, my mom did not work. My dad had three jobs, just, uh, three different jobs just to put food on the table. Uh, we were an honest, hardworking Mexican immigrant family. Uh, we... Um, we started out in the barrio, but my parents worked hard to, get our, to raise their children outside of the barrio. So my, uh, most of my neighbors, for me, when I, most of the time were white, and my classmates um, were from the local public school, and they were solidly middle class. And every December, all the kids would talk about what they were going to get for Christmas. And I dreamed about getting all of those things, too. But every Christmas... I did not get those things. You know what I got? Underwear and socks. Every Christmas. Something really practical. I didn't get a gaming system. We didn't have a gaming system in my home. And this happened Christmas after Christmas until I learned to stop loving Christmas. And on Christmas morning, me and my brothers, we didn't wake up at 5 a.m. to open presents. We slept in until after breakfast. Why? It was a way of showing that we did not care. Christmas can't hurt me. Disappointment can't hurt me. Why? Because I don't care. Y'all see what I'm doing there? I'm self-sabotaging. I'm killing hope. I kill it before it kills me, right? Right? Y'all see that? Now everyone relax. I've been in a lot of counseling, so I've worked it out. All right, I'm okay. Uh, but how did I get to that? How did I get to that place of disillusion? Well, very subtly, in ways I didn't even understand. Years earlier, I made an alliance with presents. See, I thought my relationship with Christmas gifts would would give me the joy that I'm looking for. But predictably, the false alliance did not pay out the way I would hope. So I thought Christmas was about the gifts. Just think about how things would have been different if I would not have made alliances and only rested in the king who, who we are celebrating at Christmas. I tell you this because I wonder if we're still making false alliances. Because listen, there is this tidal wave of expectation and anticipation. Christmas is built on anticipation. But I am afraid that it is all going to come crashing down hard, and I mean hard, at 10 a.m. December 25th. We are right to be anticipating something big, but our anticipation has to be redeemed. So what I want to do here is I want to do Christmas right. Let's, let's do Christmas as Christians. That's an idea. No alliances. All Jesus. I think the prophet Isaiah is going to help us with this. Let's, let's observe and see how Isaiah is going to direct the people of God, help them shake off the gloom of their false alliance, help them fix their eyes on this new king. 
And I know that this kind of seems hard to believe, right? But let's wait into the waters of faith. Let's, let's do what the original audience was called to do. Let's let the sign of Emmanuel press into our lives and encourage us. And I think this morning what we're going to see in Isaiah 9 are three ways that it presses in. One, improbable joy. Two, improbable victory. And three, improbable deliverer. So those will be our three headings. Let's start at point one, improbable joy. Now, one of the things I really like to brag about at parties, this is like my party trick, is that in 1985, I went to Michael Jackson's concert in the Houston Astrodome. It was the Thriller Tour. So my dad, one of his three jobs was working security, and he snuck me in for free, right? And so I got one of those like cheap knockoff Michael Jackson jackets, like with the chains on the shoulders. Uh, I was super into him, a huge fan. But one of my favorite songs of Michael Jackson was um, not when he was doing the moonwalk, which I taught myself to do. Uh, it wasn't even on that album. It's, it's a song that he co-writes with Lionel Richie, and he sang with a bunch of other artists. Some of you already know what it is. Y'all remember We Are the World, right? Uh, listen to these lyrics. We are the world. We are the people. We are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true. We'll make a better day, just you and me. Sounds almost like a Christmas jingle. The list of singers is like, it was like the who's who in the music world, right? Had everyone from Ray Charles, Cyndi Lauper, Tina Turner, Diana Ross, Bruce Springsteen. But there's one of these singers who really interests me, and it's Bob Dylan. Now, if you watch, now listen, I had to learn about, like Mexican kids weren't listening to Bob Dylan in the 80s or whatever, so I learned about this later, right? But but if, if you, but if you look at the video, you can Google the, the video and watch this, but Bob Dylan looks really uncomfortable, right? Something is not quite right. And so a reporter actually asks him about it, like, what's up, B.O.B., right? And he says, this is what he says, he says, I felt uncomfortable singing that song because humankind cannot save itself. It's fascinating. Can I suggest to you that with that one sentence, the great prophet poet Bob Dylan tells us the true meaning of Christmas and Advent. Humankind, humans, cannot save themselves. No matter how many alliances we make, it's dark. Now, I know that this is diametrically opposed to what we are told about with Christmas. And if, if you listen to national media in a moment of sentimentality, they will say, Christmas is about love triumphing. Christmas is about humanity shining their light and loving each other, brotherhood, sisterhood. Do you know why people are so grumpy at Christmas time? It's because everyone is so tired of trying to shine their light because no matter how hard we try, Nothing is changing. Darkness everywhere. And I'm not even talking about the scandal that's daylight saving time. 
what if Christmas was not about shining your light, but rather recognizing that light has come because humankind cannot save itself. Does that sound dark? (laughs) That's not so cheerful. I'm not a hater. Stick with me here. If you can believe what I just told you, then you will understand the improbable joy of Emmanuel. So remember, the times are really dark in Isaiah's day. False alliances meant that bad days were coming. No one was trying to shine their light. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The light is not something they generated, right? It came to them, right? And the verse continues. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. So what we have here is deep, unrelenting darkness. Now what I want you to understand is that Christmas is an indictment first. It is an indictment before it becomes a joy, right? In other words, we got to see ourselves as in the darkness. We're not the ones generating the light. And this darkness comes in two ways. Like there's this internal darkness and this external darkness. So on one hand, the darkness is in us, right? When it talks about walking in darkness, that's a very Hebrew way of saying that we're not the victims of darkness. We're the victimizers. We're we're peddling darkness. That's us, right? No one likes to talk about that because it's a little bit insulting and we're nice Denverites, respectable people, but that's what we're doing. It's much easier to blame the problems of of the world on people out there, right? It's the government. It's the education system. It's the other political party, whatever the other one is, right? It's the media. But guess what? It's us. We're the ones walking in darkness. We're the ones with the broken relationship with God. Now notice the second part of verse 2. It addresses those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. So, so on the other hand, this external darkness, a severed relationship with God overflows into the structures that we've built. It flows into our families, into our governments, into our schools. And so this also then the internal darkness also becomes external darkness. It's, it's this darkness that we perpetuate, and it's also a darkness that, cr- that crashes into us. But here's the point. That is the, inca- the occasion for improbable joy. Like in verse 3, looking at the people, sp- speaking to God, Isaiah says, You have increased its joy They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Now, like, what's the connection between darkness and joy? The the joy seems improbable. And here's why this is so joyful. It's because the law of the harvest that it's referencing there in verse 3, the harvest, the law of the harvest is broken. In other words, you don't reap what you sow. You sow darkness, but you get light. You didn't light the candle. The sun broke through. You didn't earn it. You didn't clean yourself up. The sign of Emmanuel came to people who were crippled, slaves with false alliances. See, listen, if the message of Christmas is 
fix the world by being awesome and generous and loving, then you will be jaded by December 25th. But the message of of Christmas is that God is awesome and generous and loving. He came to people in the dark. He came to people who were jaded and exhausted and says, I will take it from here. Collapse, not onto the ground. Collapse into my arms, oh weary one. You see, listen, if you understand Christmas that way, there will be joy. But if you understand it the way the world tells it, there will only be jaded disillusionment. Where is there joy anyway in the be good and good things will happen to you? I mean, yeah, like how's that working out for you? (laughs) How good are you anyway, if we're just honest? But Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, that becomes a delight when you see yourself as rescued from the pit of darkness, a pit that you dug for yourself. That's a really sweet story of rescue. That is a sweet Christmas. That's good. So that's the improbable joy, the unlikely joy that we get from Emmanuel. But how does Emmanuel do it? Let's consider our second point, improbable victory. So in verses 4 and 5, what you'll see there is this image of a victorious armistice, right? The, the rod of the oppressor is broken as, if, as or like on the day of Midian. So the battle is won, and it's referencing this Midian story. So there's this great story about Gideon in Judges 6 and 7 when he's called to fight against the Midianites. So the Midians, the Midianites have like some like 30,000 trained soldiers. And like Israel has nothing like that. And God tells Gideon to line up all like the able bodies like he can muster. And through a series of tests, God disqualifies most of them and he dismisses them. And in the final test, Gideon, this is crazy, tells the men to take a drink from the water. And some of the men, like they take a knee and very elegantly cup their hands and they drink water from their hands. But then about 300 of the dudes get on their chest and they start lapping water from the river like a dog. And then God says, yup, those are my dogs. No, I'm kidding. Those are my guys, right? Like Gideon, with those 300 men who lap water like dogs, we are going to crush this huge, well-trained army of the Midianites. And they do. It's like this improbable victory, right? So Isaiah is giving us this image of what Emmanuel achieves for us. And let me explain how. So in verse 1, it tells us that the ground zero for Emmanuel... Emmanuel's arrival is Zebulun and Naphtali, right? Or if you don't know geography that well, that's just the northern region of Israel. It's the region of the Galilee or the Galilee of the nations, right? This is where Jesus is from, the Galilee. So that area, that strip of land is a corridor which makes up a strategic route from which all warring empires come when they come to conquer Israel. It is the ancient highway for armies when they come 
to lay siege on Jerusalem. And what do foreign armies do en route to a fight? They rape and pillage and burn. And if they lose, they go out the way they came in and they rape and they pillage and they burn even worse because they're mad and they lost, right? So the region of the Galilee has this long storied history of darkness. But with Emmanuel, like we're given this new vision, right? Look, look there, read verse five. It says, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now think about this. Like this is the location of Israel's darkest history, and it's also ground zero for God's divine arrival and victory through Emmanuel. So these bloody garments are going to be used as like fuel for us, like a celebratory bonfire where war ceases, right? That's what verse 5 is saying. And that's where the reconciliation begins. They're, it's almost like, get out the marshmallows and the s'mores. We've got a bonfire. It's nuts. Isn't that something? In the Galilee, the saddest part of Israel's history becomes the place of its greatest legacy. The Galilee, where Emmanuel lived. What an improbable victory. What improbable, like, vindication. I mean, can you just think about the cross, right? The, the cal Calvary, the cross on which Emmanuel hung, right? So the cross represents the power of Rome, death, defeat. But the cross also is the place of victory and salvation. Y'all see that? And here's what we learn. Wherever God is, defeat and humiliation is turned into glory. Did you hear what I just said? Wherever God is, defeat and humiliation turns into glory. Do you know what this means? I mean, think about like, think about that moment in your life that haunts you. A moment that you wish you could just take back or just like make it disappear. And, and, and if you could like, you know that experience has changed you, informed you, it has made you who you are today painfully. Now imagine that you could become the greatest version of yourself through those really hard experiences you're like, you keep that part of it, and yet you wake up, and that event is gone. It was all a bad dream. Imagine that the bad and the sad became untrue. That's where this story is going. Christmas is the inauguration of that story. Jesus was a kid who grew up in Nazareth, in the Galilee, and he redeemed it. Everything he touches is redeemed. Like a blind guy comes to him, Jesus touches his eyes, and guess what? The man's blindness becomes untrue. And Jesus hung on a cross, he redeemed the cross, and when he rose from the dead, his death became untrue. 
Jesus always has this improbable victory. And when we receive Jesus, when we receive him, he begins the process of making the bad and the sad things in our life untrue. Like, listen, you guys, listen. One day, we're all going to die. Our children are going to die. And then what? It will become untrue because of Emmanuel's resurrection. Death is like the ground zero of our pain and our anxiety. But Jesus, God with us, he was born, then he was murdered, and he died. He went himself to the ground zero of death, and he made it untrue. What an improbable victory. And when we then receive this king, we don't make false alliances with imposters, but we're inviting him to touch our lives like he touched that blind man. One day he's going to make untrue all the darkness that sucks the life out of us. And all like the worst parts of our life, both the things that we have done and the things that we've done to others that we regret, it will become untrue. It is the ground zero for God's greatest victory. Jesus will redeem it and make it untrue. This is what Christians believe, you guys. This is why we should be so excited at Christmas time. It's not the presence, it's the arrival of Emmanuel. And if you don't believe this, then you're on your own to rationalize all the sad things in your life. And I know you got them. And in fact, if you don't believe in a personal God, then perhaps you don't even have the right to be mad at all. Because when you say something is wrong, or when you say something is bad, you're assuming that there's a good and a right. You're assuming that there's a standard. But without a God, there is no standard. At best, we get to vote on it. Life just is what it is. Life would be, there's no good, no bad, it just is. Your, your anger would make no sense. But if Christians are right, then your anger is justified. And you should be mad and sad. And Jesus says, I'm mad too, and I'm doing something about it. I will have victory at ground zero. And this improbable victory comes through a small baby boy born of a virgin who we call Emmanuel. Improbable victory. All right, let me, I've gone along, I've gone along here. Let me use my third point as my conclusion. So what I've tried to do this morning is examine how this sign of Emmanuel encourages us with improbable joy and then improbable victory. But who is Emmanuel specifically, and what is Emmanuel like? So let's consider our final point in conclusion, an improbable deliverer. Now, as a reader, or even as the original audience for them, this section is a little bit weird, right? So verse 6 is the climax. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, I'm told, like, in the newspaper world, um, that if a big headline falls or hits, a big piece, a news store breaks, 
then the editors will take the largest font available in their type setting, right? Um, th this would be uh, occasions like Neil Armstrong landing on the moon or JFK being assassinated. They will take the largest font available and big, bold words across the width of the newspaper. Do you know what that font, font what that typesetting is called? I'll tell you what it's called. I just learned this. It's called second coming type. I'm not even making this up. That's what it's called. Second coming type. So when the text says, for to us a child is born, this news is so big that it needs like second coming type, right? This is the headline. Our text is the first coming of God, but it's also so big that it reaches even to our future, right? But listen, verse 6 is a really weird thing to say. In fact, it might even seem a little anticlimactic, if we're honest. Think about this. In Isaiah's prediction, he has told us that improbable joy is going to erupt. He told us that this improbable victory is going to happen. Great. Awesome. God, how exactly are you going to do this? A baby. To us, a child is born. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, um, so that's your plan? A baby? Think about how weird that is to say, right? Like, like uh, uh, Taylor and Mary Boone, right? They just had their baby. Like, could you imagine, like, Mary coming up on stage and taking the mic and saying, hi, Denver Prez, uh, my little baby girl. Her name is Summer. And she holds out Summer and says, uh, Summer has been born unto you. Like, that's weird. Does everyone agree that that's weird? I mean, what does that even mean, right? And that verse is like plastered on every Christmas card, and no one has stopped to think, what does that even mean? How is a baby born unto a group of people? Like, what is that? Well, here's how. Israel needed a child born of King David's lineage to become a king. And that is what verse 7, look there, the throne of David is about. That's what that's about. Only a good king could undo all the mess that King Ahaz has done. Israel will need a deliverer. And listen, you and your children and me and my children, we need that deliverer too. Now this is where the story that our Jewish friends, their story doesn't go far enough. This is where the story continues. This king, Emmanuel, born of a virgin, God with us is different than other kings. This king doesn't want to ascend to human thrones. He, do, he doesn't simply want the real estate in, located in Palestine. He wants the whole world, right? He is laying claim to, like, to a whole thing to include every corner of your heart. And the more that we learn about this baby... Uh, the, the, we, we, the more we learn, we learn some of his weird, interesting nicknames. Look there in verse 6. Well, let me just say, names are kind of funny, right? Like a lot of parents won't talk about the names of their children before they're born, like when they're still in the womb. Um, part of that's just like keeping people's opinions out of it, right? If you're like, yeah, I'm going to name my new baby um, when, when he's born, Ronnie. And someone will be like, I knew a Ronnie in high school was a real jerk, right? Like, you know, like parents don't need your opinion, so they kind of don't tell people about it, right? Um, so 
we had friends of ours, Jeff and Cecilia, I talk about them a lot. Um, they, uh, they had their baby, and they kept their son's name a secret, you know. And here was my experience of learning the name of their baby. So I get, on the day of the birth, I get a text from Jeff, and all it says is James Lee Heiser and the time and the weight of the child. The next morning, Amanda and I arrived to the hospital. This is the little buddy that Amanda and I had been praying for for months, right? We're, we're so looking forward to meeting him. And I look into the eyes of, this, of his sweet little face, and I think to myself, this is definitely a James. He's perfectly a James. And that's how these nicknames of Jesus work. This baby is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Like when the shepherds and the wise men first look into the eyes of the child, they say, yeah, this is definitely a mighty God. He is perfectly a wonderful counselor. You can see it in his eyes. This is the child that everyone knows will govern and rule him or her as an everlasting father, as a prince of peace. And that child grew up and fulfilled those names. Mighty God, Prince of Peace, he came. And the government will be upon his shoulders. Those are big shoulders. And one day those shoulders would be strapped to a cross. Do you remember how when Jesus was crucified, do you remember how the sky went dark? The darkness that we walked in was put on Jesus. And that's how the light breaks through. Jesus redeems everything he touches. Like, is he in your heart? Have you received him? 2,000 years ago, Isaiah's prediction came true exactly as it was foretold. And Jesus will return again to complete this improbable joy and victory as our deliverer. Let that be the liturgy of our heart this Advent season in anticipation of Christmas. It is so hard to keep focus at, in Christ at Christmas, right? It's, it's exhausting us, right? Show after show, we keep seeing that Everyone's getting a big rock from Jared or some new Lexus with a bow on it, right? Ah, it's exhausting. Let's make no more alliances this, this Christmas. No self-sabotaging, no killing hope. None of those things are big enough to cover your pain or to fulfill your deepest longings. But Jesus can. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Emmanuel, God with us. And indeed he is. Amen. Amen.